Luke 17, verse 1. Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offense should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, and that he should offend one of the little, these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all these things which you are commanded, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. As far as the reading of God's word may add his blessing to it. It is our privilege this evening to consider the Word of God as summarized by the Heidelberg Catechism, and so I encourage you to look at page 62 in the back of the Psalter Hymnal, Lord's Day 51, question and answer 126, concerning the fifth request of the Lord's Prayer. What does the fifth request mean? And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, means... Because of Christ's blood, do not hold against us, poor sinners that we are, any of the sins we do or the evil that continually clings to us. Forgive us just as we are fully determined, as evidence of your grace in us, to forgive our neighbors. Beloved of the Lord, I've chosen this evening to approach this Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism in a way that I've never approached it before. It's always been my practice to follow the outline of the Catechism and to take what it takes first and what it takes second to take that second. And so if I were doing that, I would deal first with God's forgiveness of us and then secondly, our forgiveness of one another as fruit or evidence of God's gracious work in our heart. But I heard a sermon from another minister not too long ago on Luke 17. It wasn't a catechism sermon, but I, I, I saw immediately a connection to the catechism, and I was greatly inspired to uh, take a new approach, write a new sermon, as it were, and uh, present some, uh, a different approach to, to fir- put first not to ignore God's uh, forgiveness of us, but to give first attention to uh, our forgiveness of one another as evidence of uh, God's work of grace in our heart. Uh, The sermon I heard was from one of my favorite preachers, uh, Reverend Tim Keller, 
and uh, you may hear echoes of his ideas tonight. The words are my own, I assure you. I'm not uh, plagiarizing uh, words, but uh, as in every sermon, there are ideas that come from other commentators and other ministers that I don't feel the need to footnote each one, but uh, you will hear echoes of some of what he had to say on Luke 17. I, I take this approach because the human heart is very deceitful, and one of the things that it does is it de- we, we deceive ourselves, we, we fool ourselves. We, we often think that we're okay when we're not, that of course our sins are forgiven. Of course God has forgiven our sins, that we just take that for granted, even though the evidence that is supposed to show that we are forgiven isn't there, namely our willingness to forgive freely from the heart those who sin against us in the same manner in which we have been forgiven. And so to to underscore the importance of, of knowing God's forgiveness of us, we want to 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 look at this fruit, to make sure that this fruit is in our lives. And if it's not in our lives right now, then resolve from this time forward by the grace of God and through his help that it be in our lives, that we may be assured that indeed God has forgiven us. Not that our forgiveness by God is conditioned on our forgiveness of others. He doesn't say, I will forgive you if you forgive others, but rather you can know that I have forgiven if you see a change in your heart, because God's work of grace changes our hearts, you can know that I've changed your heart if indeed your heart has changed toward those who sin against you. Now in this passage, Jesus tells us who to forgive. He tells us how to forgive. And he tells us, uh, he gives us an illustration of our situation to drive home the point of uh, what he has been saying about forgiveness. Now, who are we to forgive? Well, we're to forgive those who have offended us. Now, Jesus starts this chapter in the first two verses with talking about giving offense. And he warns his disciples, be careful not to give offense. But then, without spending too much time on that, uh, warning them to be careful in their teaching, not to lead anyone astray, you know, be careful that you always teach the truth, he, he then turns it around and says, And you also need to be concerned about how you deal with people who offend you. And I think what he has in mind there is, it's not enough that you get your teaching right. You can get your teaching right and nevertheless not get the point across because your life is a total contradiction of what you're teaching. If you're teaching the gospel of reconciliation, if you're teaching the gospel of peace, if you're teaching the gospel of forgiveness, but you are hard-hearted, mean-spirited, unforgiving, then all your right teaching, no matter, even if you're, you're, you've got all your ducks in a row doctrinally, your, your life is going to undercut and you're going to give an offense that way. And so we need to take heed to ourselves. Now, he's telling us here that we need to forgive, to uh, uh, forgive those who offend us. But when the disciples hear what he says, 
they're taken aback. They're somewhat shocked. <laughs> and their response is, uh, we can't do that. <laughs> Although what they say is, increase our faith. Uh, a very humble, good prayer. Increase our faith. They, they, they feel totally inadequate. Now, why is it that they are responding this way? What, what was it that Jesus said? Well, the duty he imposes on them is perhaps a little bit more than what you might first imagine. He says, if, if your brother sins against you, forgive him. But then he adds, if he forgives, sins against you seven times in a day and come back to you seven times in that day and says, forgive me, you need to forgive him. Now, what's that all about? Have you tried to imagine how that might work? You know, somebody sins against you. They offend you. They hurt you. And they realize it and they come and they ask for forgiveness. And then two months later, no, not two months later, the same day, they do it again. And they come to you and ask for forgiveness. And, well, I already forgave you once, but again, yes, okay, I will forgive you. And the third time and the fourth time and the fifth time, by the time they get to the, the fourth or the fifth or especially the sixth, you're going to say, what's going on here? Are you really sorry for what you're doing? Now, if it were a little thing, a, a minor infraction, you know, a, a slip of the tongue or a, a minor injury or something, you say, okay, seven times, yeah, no big deal. But that's not, Jesus doesn't say a minor sin. In fact, it's probably even worse than just seven times in a day. There's, there's a second way to, to understand that reference to seven. Dr. Venema mentioned that other way of understanding. Well, he didn't talk about this text, but he talked about the number seven last Sunday morning when he said that uh, one of the seven letters to the churches of Asia was addressed to Covenant Reformed Church in Pella. And on what basis did he say that? Well, because there were seven letters. Now, you and I are not uh, accustomed to giving symbolic significance to numbers, but the Jewish culture did. And as Dr. Venema pointed out, the number seven uh, is symbolic of fullness, completeness, or even perfection. And so, instead of reading this as seven repetitions of one sin, think of it as the, the perfect sin, the, the perfect storm of sin. That somebody sins against you in the worst possible way. Uh, you can let your imagination wander for a moment. What would be the, the worst possible thing that somebody could do to you? The worst possible sin against you? I imagine our answers would be different depending upon our age, upon our circumstances, and, and so forth. But... Whatever it is, if it is the, the perfect storm of sin against you, the worst thing that anybody could possibly do to you, if that's what the, uh, the disciples understood, then it's no wonder they say, Lord, increase our faith. Well, it really doesn't matter whether, whether it's seven sins, the same sin seven times, 
and not a little sin, because he doesn't say little sin, but any sin that hurts, repeat it seven times so that it becomes a really big thing, or whether it's one sin that is the really big thing, our duty is the same. We need to forgive. Now, how do we deal with that? How do we forgive? Well, the first thing that Jesus says is, take heed to yourself. Watch yourselves. Now, think about that for a moment. Somebody has sinned against you. You haven't done anything. And Jesus says, you take heed to yourselves. When you are sinned against, you need to be careful. Why do you need to be careful? Well, because if you don't handle this rightly, you'll handle it wrongly. And if you handle it wrongly, not only will you undercut the gospel, the message of peace and reconciliation, the message of forgiveness, but you may endanger your own soul. The author of Hebrews writes in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, See to, that, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and that and by it many become defiled. If you don't forgive, what's the alternative? It's, it's anger, it's rage, it's bitterness. It's a desire to get even, to fight back. Say, you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. And so often when, when we say, you know, you hurt me, I hurt you, we're, we're like Lamech married to Ada and Zillah. You remember that? Lamech married to Ada and Zillah, seventh in line from Adam through Cain's line. A man slightly injured me and I killed him. You know, we, it's, it's so distressing when I see little children acting like Lamech. <laughs> you know, little Susie angry at her brother, so she hits him in the arm. And little Johnny turns around and slugs her in the face and gives her a black eye. <laughs> and why did you do that to your little sister? Well, she hit me first. You know? Yeah, she gave you a little tap on the arm. You slugged her in the face and gave her a black eye. And as grown-ups, we hardly ever grow out of that. You hurt me, I hurt you back, and you hurt me a little, I hurt you a lot. And he's saying that that root of bitterness, that root of bitterness will, will, will grow and cause you to fail to obtain the grace of God. Fall short of the grace of God, our pulpit Bibles say. Uh, New King James says you will f- uh, fail to obtain the grace of God if that root of bitterness grows. That's why you have to, to watch yourself. You know, uh, Reverend Keller, in uh, more than one of his sermon, I, I've heard him mention this, that there are four English words that all have the same root, English root. Uh, they are the words wrath, wreath, writhe, and wraith. Now, to uh, a wreath... That's something made of twigs or flowers or other material that's twisted into a circular form. Its structure is formed by twisting material into a shape. 
to writhe, as to writhe in pain, is to uh, twist and turn and squirm and, and wiggle in pain. And, you know, you get all twisted up because of the pain. You can't find any place to rest, and so you're, you're thrashing about, writhing in pain. A wraith is a, a fictional uh, character, uh, something that appears in fictional literature. A wraith is a ghost, the spirit of a dead person. But not just any ordinary dead person, but someone who has suffered a great wrong in life. In a lot of stories, it's a person who's been murdered, the ghost of a person who's been murdered. And this, this ghost can find no rest until he takes vengeance upon the person or the family, or anyone who is in the vicinity of where he suffered wrong. He continues to haunt his last abode where he suffered wrong because he doesn't want anybody there to be happy. As long as he doesn't get revenge, he can't rest. And so he's, he's twisted, twisted with anger, twisted with the desire for re- revenge. Well, all those words have that twisting idea in it. And, and that's what... Wrath is. Wrath is being twisted inside with, with rage, with anger, with bitterness. Don't let that root of bitterness. Watch yourself. Don't let it grow because if it grows, it defiles many and you may fail to obtain the grace of God. This uh, petition of the Lord's Prayer is, is all about what the Catechism warns us about. The, the clear inference in, in the Lord's Day is that if you refuse to forgive but instead harbor hatred in your heart, then then you can have no assurance that your own sins have been forgiven. Refusing to forgive, staying angry, wanting revenge will distort and twist your heart. It will cast a dark shadow over every aspect of your life. It will block out the, the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if you don't repent, you will become a, a living Wraith, twisted by hate, who can never find peace or rest. Well, that's what we don't want to do. Uh, How not to respond? How should we respond? Well, uh, some people think, you know, you can't just teach me how to forgive. Forgiveness is is, is hard. How, How can I forgive somebody if I'm so hurt? How can I forgive somebody if I'm so angry? I can't just turn off that anger. It's there, and it's beyond my control. Well, forgiveness is very much like love. You've heard, I'm sure, numerous times that there are three different Greek words for love, and the, the special word, the great word agape love is self-sacrificial love. Well, agape love is first an action before it's a feeling. And that's what forgiveness is also. Forgiveness is an act of agape love, which is first an action before it's a feeling. You can forgive people that you're ang- still angry with by acting a certain way, by doing certain things. And just as with agape love, when you love someone self-sacrificially, even people you don't like, then uh, over time the feelings come and you begin to to like them as well as uh, loving them. First you love them and, and then you grow to like them. You know, in a congregation this size, there's bound to be 
dozens of people here that under any other circumstance you would say, I, they're really not the kind of people that I feel comfortable around or want to associate with. But we're commanded to love each other with agape love. And over the years, we, we learn to show our love in various acts of kindness and generosity. And, and lo and behold, these people that in any other setting we would never be friends with, we, we actually begin to, to like them and to enjoy their company because we have loved them. Now that's what forgiveness is like. It's, it's an action before it's a feeling. Well, what are the actions? Well, there's three things that, that Jesus says to do here. The first thing you need to do is to identify with the sinner who has sinned against you. Now, where does he say that? Well, he says that when he says, when your brother sins against you. Not when that low-life scum sins against you, but when your brother sins against you. The one who stands alongside you, who is just like you because he's your brother. And this word can have a broad meaning. It can mean your blood brother, the child of your mother, you know. It can mean your brother in the faith. Or it can even mean your brother in humanity. For we are all fallen image bearers of God with every other human being. God is the Father of all in the sense that He is the Creator of, the all, of all. There's you know, two ways the Bible uses the word Father. First of all, for His, His, His chosen people, but in a couple of places also, He's the Father of all mankind. And, and all mankind are our brothers. And we have a duty to, to forgive even people outside the faith. Think of the Sermon on the Mount and the end of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun to shine on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He does acts of kindness to our enemies, to the wicked, to the just and the unjust. And therefore we shall are to do acts of kindness like forgiveness. In Mark chapter uh, 11, uh, Jesus says, And when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespass. If stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. No qualifications there. Not your blood family, not your church family, anyone in the world. When you stand praying, forgive unilaterally. Completely forgive those who have sinned against you. So the first thing we need to do then is recognize that this person who, who has sinned against me is just like me. He's, he's my brother. He's, he's my brother in fallen humanity and I can't put myself on a plateau high above him and look down my nose at him. As long as I am proud and arrogant and looking down, I'll never be able to forgive. I have to, to identify with the sinner and recognize that I have sinned also. 
We're all sinners. We're all broken image bearers of God. That's the first thing you do is identify with the sinner. The second thing you do is cancel the debt and pay it yourself. Now you're scratching your head. I don't see that in the text. Where does it say cancel the debt and pay it yourself? Well, it says forgive. It says forgive him. And what does the word forgive mean? If you look in a dictionary of the Greek language, you look up the Greek word here and look up uh, the definition. It says uh, the Greek word that's used, translated here, forgive, to send off, to let go, to release as in forgiving a financial debt. Like saying to the debtor, don't worry about it. It's taken care of. You don't owe me anything. Now let's say you own a building and you have a renter in the building. And the renter says to you, oh, this COVID-19, it's, it's ruined my income. I have no income for, for March and April. I can't pay the rent. Now you're the landlord. You're the owner of the building. You need the rent to pay the taxes. You need the rent to pay the mortgage. You need the rent to keep up the upkeep on the building. What are you going to do? Well, you can do what a lot of landlords are doing now and say, well, I won't evict you for late payment, but you've got to pay sometime. You know? But it is conceivable that some landlord might say, don't worry about it. March, April, I forgive the debt. You don't owe it to me anymore. I expect you to start paying in June and July and August and so forth uh, because now you're back open, you're back in business again. But I forgive the debt. Well, when you, if you, the landlord, forgive the debt, who pays the taxes? Who pays the mortgage? Who pays the upkeep on the, the building? Well, you do. You know, there's, there's a, an old metaphor for that. You, you eat it. You know, uh, that you eat the loss. You, you, you internalize it. You take it on yourself. To forgive means to cancel the debt and pay it yourself. I hope you're not surprised at that definition. You ought to know that definition. <laughs> if you've been raised in the church, you ought to know that that's what, that's what forgiveness is. When God forgives you, what does He do? He says... Ah, your sins, no big deal, no skin off my nose, I don't care about them, uh, I'll forget about them, fine. Uh-uh, that's not what God does. That's not how God forgives. Every time you and I sin, we incur a debt. And in order for Him to cancel the debt, He has to pay it. He paid the debt in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, whose death on the cross satisfies the just demands of God's righteousness so that our sins may be forgiven. To, to forgive means to cancel and pay it yourself. That's what God does for us. Now, when we sin against God, we sin against the most holy being in the universe and the wages of such sin is death. When we sin against each other, we're sinning against broken sinners. 
and the the debt isn't as great. You know, it's it's the difference between denting an old beater that uh, you accidentally back into and and uh, having a collision with a, a Rolls Royce Silver Cloud and and denting that. You know. Uh, there's a lot more consequences when you, you dent the Rolls Royce than when you that old, dent that old junky car. Well, sinning against each other, the, the debt isn't as big. You know, sin against me isn't worth your life. It is if I sin against God, but not when I sin against you and you sin against me. What's the debt? Well, you know, uh, the... Uh, if someone robs you of happiness, sins against you and, and makes you sad, or ruins your reputation, destroys your career, you say, you robbed me of my happiness, now I'm going to destroy your life. Or you robbed me of my reputation, now I'm going to ruin your reputation. No, you cancel the debt and you, you eat it. There's pain involved. Every time you're nice to that person, it's going to hurt. The hurt you wished that they would experience, that that you wish they would feel because they've done it to you, you say, no, I'm not going to inflict that hurt on them. I'm going to bear that hurt myself. Identify with the sinner. Cancel the debt by paying it yourself, by enduring the hurt silently. Suffering in silence as Christ suffered in your place. Now, you suffer the hurt that he deserves to experience because he sinned against you. You endure it silently in yourself. You eat it. You internalize it. You bear it. Over time, God will make the hurt less as he sees the intention of your heart. And it will be easier every time you remember how much he has forgiven you. But then there's a third thing. In addition to identifying and canceling the death, debt and the pain at yourself, he says, rebuke him. And now you say, ah, pastor, I like that. This is what I like to hear. I get to now go and tell him what I think of him, right? I get to rebuke him. Uh, watch it. Take heed to yourself. In another place it says, go in a spirit of gentleness taking heed to yourself lest you be tempted. Uh, Before you go to someone, you have to already forgive them in your heart. Because if you don't already forgive them in your heart, you still have anger and bitterness. And you're not going to win them over by yelling at them and screaming at them and, and inflicting pain on them. You're going to win them over by your gentleness and your kindness, by your act of love and by your willingness to to eat the hurt and not let it show, not let him see uh, uh, what you're doing. Uh, You know, Romans 2 says, the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. The purpose of, of rebuking is to win your brother over. Mark 11 says, or excuse me, Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won him over. The purpose of the visit is not to vent. The purpose of the visit is to win him over. And so, even before you go, 
according to Mark 11, you need to forgive in your heart. When you're praying and you remember somebody has hurt you, you need to forgive them in your heart. Now, there's a difference between forgiving in heart and saying to somebody, I forgive you. You know, when, when King David committed adultery and murder, he didn't repent right away. And the Bible uses a, a metaphor in a situation like that, that God hides his face. And what David experienced was my bones dried up as in the heat of summer, you know. And, and when he finally does repent, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Not restore my salvation, but restore the joy of my salvation. Because when he was unrepentant, there was no joy. And God did that as a kindness. God withdrew his smiley face. And David had no joy in his relationship with God. Even though... The moment David sinned, God had already forgiven David in God's heart. God had already forgiven him in his heart. Even though David hadn't repented yet, God was dealing with him gently and kindly by hiding his face. You know, So, so there's a difference between forgiving in your heart and, and how you conduct yourselves toward the person before and after they repent. But you have to get rid of that bitterness and rage by forgiving them in your heart before you go to them, so that you go in kindness. Now Jesus illustrates all of this with a parable. And the the parable is, is hard to understand because there's nothing like this in our culture, but it was readily understood in the the culture shaped by Mosaic law, particularly by Deuteronomy 15. The key, I think, is the word unprofitable servants. What are unprofitable servants? You know, we don't we don't know what that is in our culture. You know, if an employer hires an employee, there's profit for both. You know, the, the employee does a certain produces something, and the employer compensates him with more than what it costs the employee to get to work and and be there, so that he has enough money to go buy a house and support a family and so forth. There's profit for the worker, but there's also profit for the employer who takes the the service or the product and sells it for a profit. There's profitability all around. Uh, how can servants be unprofitable, uh, even in ancient times or not so ancient times where the institution of the wicked institution of slavery existed. Uh, there was profit for the, the plantation owner, not for the slave, but there was profit for the plantation owner. The, the owner was indebted to the work of the slaves uh, because it made him rich. Uh, what, what kind of situation is there where, there where you have unprofitable servants? Well, Deuteronomy 15 talks about the poor in Israel and how to deal with the poor in Israel. The poor who get so in debt that they can't pay off their, their debts. And what they were to do was the, the, the debtor was to go to the one to whom he owed money and become his servant. But Mosaic law limited it to seven years, really to six years, because it says in the seventh year you're to send him off. Uh, So six, six and a half years, whatever, seven years, or at the end of seven years, send them off. Uh, They put a limit on it. And why why the limit of seven years? Because Was it because in seven years any debt could be paid off completely? No, on the contrary, most debts couldn't be paid off in seven years. Uh, It really, the system did compensate 
the one to whom money was owed. He got some benefit from it, but he, he rarely, if ever, got full compensation, so there was really never any profit for him. After the servant does everything he's supposed to do, he'll still leave after seven years owing that man some money. In fact, the man has to not send him away empty-handed, but give him a grub stake to help get restarted. The whole system was really more about compassion for the servant, for this person who had been a poor steward, uh, uh, maybe not a good worker. This seven years of employment will teach him a good work ethic, uh, give him more responsibility, kind of rehabilitate himself so that he can be sent out again uh, to make a better start in life and give, give the, uh, the one to whom money had been owed some compensation, but never enough to, to pay. That's the situation that you have here. Now notice in the story, these workers, these people who were poor and indebted and are trying to compensate somebody for the debts that they, they owe, are, are doing a hard day's work and wanting to come in and sit down with the master. Right, right after work, when the master would eat, they want to sit down and eat with him as if they're, they're equal with the master. And some of them are thinking, you know, uh, I did a good day's work, the master ought to thank me. Uh, I, I, I think he's indebted to me for what I did so that he owes me his thanks. These servants who can never pay off their debt are trying to act like masters and as, as if they're, they're able to pay off their debts and, and that the, the master is indebted to them. And Jesus says, no. Remember in this situation that even after you've done everything, you're still unprofitable. Well, what's this all about? Well, this is about you and me. You know, why is it that the Lord's Prayer is found two different ways? In one place it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then in another place in the Gospels, it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's because trespasses are debts. Trespasses, sins, indebt us to God and we owe Him. And he has devised a system for our rehabilitation that is more, compens- more for our rehabilitation than it is for him compensation. We can never pay him back all that he owes to us. We're, we're forgetting that, that we're sinners and that we are deeply in debt. It's the same thing that we need to remember from the parable of the unmerciful servant. You know, the, the, the one servant who was forgiven this huge debt and then he turned around and demanded payment of someone who owed him very little. Well, relatively speaking, you and I owe each other very little when we sin against each other. Not that our sins aren't important and, and can be very grievous at times, but in comparison to our debt to God, what we owe each other is nothing. We are forever in his debt, and, and we can never pay it off. And, and we need to, to humble ourselves and remember that. And especially, above all, we need to remember that our master, to whom we are indebted, humbled himself, and he became a servant to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He paid our debt. By the strength of his divinity, he was able to bear in his humanity the weight of our debt, a a, a weight that would have eternally crushed us if it fell on us. But he bore the weight of our sins, the guilt of our sins, the punishment of our sins throughout his life of suffering, but especially during those three black hours on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He was forsaken so that you wouldn't be. So that you could be forgiven. You are the servant who can never pay off your debts. And you have a master who has paid them for you. And now he says to you, forgive as you have been forgiven. Amen.